Good morning. Putin's bridge is bombed. Is there a failsafe to prevent nuclear conflict? A cop speaks out for legalizing pot. The 14th Amendment defended and guns in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Drienzo with the news for Monday, October 10th, 2022. Russian President Vladimir Putin Sunday called the attack that damaged the Kerch Bridge connecting Russia to Crimea a terrorist act masterminded by Ukrainian special services. There is no doubt this is an act of terrorism aimed at destroying Russia's critical civilian infrastructure, its authors, Perpetrators and beneficiaries are the security services of Ukraine. Road and rail traffic on the bridge were temporarily halted after what appeared to be a truck bomb exploding on the span, a double span, the auto bridge is parallel to a railroad bridge, and a train of tankers loaded with fuel is passing at the exact moment ignited by the bomb with the fire damaging the structure. In Kyiv, a presidential advisor called Putin's accusations too cynical even for Russia. Meanwhile, Overnight, Russian missiles slammed into an apartment complex in Zaporozhizhia, killing 13 people. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba called the attacks in Zaporozhizhia a war crime and urged an international investigation. In related news, days after President Joe Biden delivered a warning the war in Ukraine could escalate into a nuclear Armageddon, the White House emphasized there have been no signs Russia is gearing up its nuclear arsenal. It's been decades since the difference between strategic and tactical nuclear war has been a subject of discussion in the United States. It's the difference between Hiroshima-sized bombs and a bomb five or ten times bigger, the difference between destroying a small city and a large one like New York. In the 1960s, shortly after the world came perilously close to nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Hollywood films took on the subject. One of the films... Based on a popular novel of the same name, was called Failsafe, starring Henry Fonda as the president. I've ordered a Vindicator bomber into the air from Washington. In a few minutes, it will be flying over New York City. It is carrying two 20 megaton bombs. The moment I know that Moscow has been hit, I will order that plane to drop its bombs. It will use the Empire State Building for ground zero. When we hear the shriek of Mr. Lentoff's phone melding, we will know that he is gone, and with him, New York. I can hear the sound of explosions from the northeast. The sky is very bright. All lit up. A clip from the trailer for the film Failsafe, released in 1964, a mistake sends a flight of nuclear-armed U.S. bombers to Russia, and the cost of peace, the simultaneous destruction of New York City by an American bomber. And Pulitzer Prize-winning author Kai Bird has written about war and peace in the nuclear age. His latest article is Not Even Nuclear War Will Stop the Fighting in Ukraine, published in The Nation. He spoke with the news about the possibility of nuclear war. We obviously live in very dangerous times, and I, uh, what fears frightens me the most these days is the the danger of sort of accidental war, where we miscalculate, and more importantly, Mr. Putin in Russia miscalculates and thinks that he can threaten the use of nuclear weapons and 
the Ukraine and uh, not have that lead to a nuclear war. In fact, it could happen accidentally. Right. We could stumble into it, just like the European powers stumbled into World War One. People born since the 1980s, they might not understand really how serious this is. Exactly. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember as a young boy the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, there have been all sorts of history books written about that, but only in the last few years have we understood what actually happened then and how close we were to an accidental exchange of nuclear weapons. Where nuclear weapons are introduced ends with the end of civilization for the whole world. So both sides know this, yet they continue on this path. The thought that, you know, the argument that Putin is making is that, well, I have these small weapons, these tactical weapons, battlefield weapons that are nukes, and I could use one or two or three of those to change the battlefield in the Ukraine without going, without igniting a general nuclear war. And uh, even that argument is just completely irrational because when you actually look at these, quote, small weapons, they're actually quite big and they have no real conventional target. Um, so nuclear weapons of any size, people should understand, are not really useful military weapons, simply weapons of terror, as Robert Oppenheimer said in 1945, just three months after Hiroshima. He tried to explain that these were weapons for aggressors. They could not be used defensively. They're not military weapons. They're weapons of terror. What could we ever do besides wipe him out, his whole country out, in retaliation? I, I don't, I, well, I just don't see... We, we can't even contemplate that. You can't, you know, that would be Armageddon. And that's crazy. Um, so we have to step back from the nuclear brink yeah. and be upfront about the fact that these are not weapons that can actually be used. Yes, absolutely. I hope that the frightening prospect of, of seeing these, these weapons of mass destruction used on a battlefield is going to frighten people enough to sort of reconsider the whole thing, and we should move towards a, a disarmament regime. Of, um, the Ukrainians are justified in resisting, and you know we hope that they are able to defeat Russians and clear Russian troops out of their territory. They have a justifiable defensive war. Uh, having said that, you know, it's it's true. We should have taken advantage of the end of the Cold War, and we've had many missed opportunities to um, create a, a, a long peace. And it's a it's uh, tragedies that instead we've gotten ourselves into what is essentially a new Cold War with the Russians. Pulitzer Prize winning author Kai Bird has written about war and peace in the nuclear age. His latest article is Not Even Nuclear War Will Stop the Fighting in Ukraine, published in The Nation.
At the height of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union had about 10,000 weapons ready to launch. The USSR had a stockpile of more than 50,000. Today, after years of disarmament treaties, the two countries have about 1,500 weapons each ready for use. Nuclear experts say 100 bombs would be enough to destroy civilization on Earth as we know it. And on Friday, a gas station in Ireland exploded, killing 10 people, including a father and his 10-year-old daughter, and a mother and her 13-year-old son. At least one of the 50 injured is in critical condition. The town mayor and a local priest had these comments about the heroic scenes of rescue after the blast. It's something that doesn't happen um, in, in, in this part of the world, in a r- rural community. And especially the location of the shop, which is it's a community hub. It's where people met, especially at 3 o'clock on a Friday evening. And there's a lot of people be there, and it's just, just difficult. We see more clearly than ever before the power of a good community. Uh, uh, people on the one hand devastated with a, a shared sense of worry and, and anxiety and, and impending loss. Uh, and then on the other hand, uh, I heard from the Gardaí that at the very beginning they were astounded at how readily and quickly uh, members of the community raced up and, and, and were doing all in their power to, to, to try and, and help. The explosion happened in the village of Creeslow, near the border with Northern Ireland. Police are still investigating the cause of the blast. In national news, President Biden's decision to pardon thousands of people convicted of federal marijuana possession is a small policy change that's having a big effect in an important election year. No one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. While Republican candidates like Dr. Mehmet Oz running for Pennsylvania Senate is using the occasion to accuse Democratic challenger John Fetterman of being weak on crime, the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania issued his own pardon of nonviolent marijuana offenders on Thursday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he has no plans for any pot pardons, but challenger Beto O'Rourke promised to legalize cannabis and expunge everybody's criminal records if elected, while Arkansas GOP Governor Asa Hutchinson accused Biden of a surrender in the war on drugs. Current and former cops have been weighing into the debate, too. Retired police lieutenant Diane Goldstein is director of Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or LEAP. She says Biden's decision is a good start, but changing federal drug laws to reschedule pot, moving cannabis to a different category than fentanyl and other dangerous drugs, is the real goal. This is a necessary first step to right many of the injustices that have been done under the name of the drug war. I'm focusing mostly on the marijuana because that seems to be the most amount of arrests, actually. And This is a very complex and nuanced discussion. So relative to the issue of, of cannabis in particular, as my organization recognizes the need for complete descheduling, which will allow a nationwide decriminalization of marijuana uh, on a that and it will allow other governors on a state-by-state basis to create, hopefully, kind of a smart-on-drug policy is 
um, we know um, in particular that the sky has not fallen since literally 2012 when we started doing state-by-state reforms. Um, you know, there's been all sorts of research that has been done both on cannabis and, and if we go back to the beginning of the drug war, you have to remember that the Schaefer Commission that was directed by Richard Nixon to explore the issue of cannabis said back in the 1970s that marijuana should be completely decriminalized. Joe Biden, as a senator in the 80s and 90s, was responsible for many of the mandatory minimum laws that at one time put so many people for marijuana in jail. And Sure. People and legislators and politicians and presidents should be allowed to evolve on their view, just like law enforcement has in many ways. I mean, my organization wouldn't exist if uh, all of us hadn't had our, our epiphany moments because we were down in the trenches seeing the failures of our drug mm. control strategies. What was your epiphany? I ran a narcotics unit for um, a couple years as a sergeant, and then I, I worked um, as a gang officer and, and school resource officer. And, you know, the epiphany start is when you arrest hundreds of people for simple possession or you cite them because California had decrim statues long before other states and marijuana is still available it's cheap it's easy to, to have so you know I look at it from going back to high school my law enforcement career started in 1983 to 2004 I graduated high school in 1979 we could access any drug we wanted you know during my high school experience and today I will tell you is is one of the indications of our drug war um, failures is that drugs still today are easily accessible um, and so all the efforts and supply side uh, interventions haven't worked drugs are cheaper more potent more pure and it's a necessary step to deschedule, to pardon and expunge people's records going back decades who've been negatively impacted by the collateral consequences. Retired Police Lieutenant Diane Goldstein is Director of Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or LEAP. In more national news, the newest justice of the Supreme Court is making waves during her first week on the job. The court heard arguments in a redistricting map case from Alabama about a district that seems to have been drawn to reduce black voting power. She used an argument usually reserved for conservatives, the supposed original intent of the framers of the Constitution, many of whom were slave owners. In this case, she argues the post-Civil War 14th Amendment was passed not to be race neutral, but to advance the interests of former slaves. I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, at what the framers and the founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, in a race-conscious way. That they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against, the freedmen, um, in, during the Reconstruction period, uh, were actually uh, 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 brought equal to everyone else in the society. So I looked at the uh, report 
that was submitted by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, which drafted the 14th Amendment. Um, and that report says that the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. The legislator who introduced that amendment said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not, um, that's not a race-neutral or race-blind idea in terms of the remedy. And, and even more than that, um, I don't think that the historical record establishes that the founders uh, believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required, right? They drafted the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which specifically stated that citizens would have the same civil rights as enjoyed by white citizens. That's the point of that act, to make sure that the other citizens, the black citizens, would have the same as the white citizens, so they recognized that there was unequal treatment, that people based on their race were being treated uh, unequally. And importantly, when there was a concern that the Civil Rights Act wouldn't have a constitutional foundation, that's when the 14th Amendment came into play. It was drafted to give a foundational, uh, a, a constitutional foundation for a piece of legislation that was designed to make people who had less opportunity and less rights equal to white citizens. Justice Jackson quoted a 1866 speech by Republican Representative Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, who was a strong proponent of civil rights for black people. He said, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. Closer to home, a federal judge has temporarily blocked the enforcement of a New York gun law that attempted to reinstate prohibitions on gun ownership struck down by the Supreme Court this summer. Judge Glenn T. Sutterby of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of New York ruled the high court was right to strike down New York's strict permit requirements, saying it violated the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Mayor Eric Adams called the judge's decision frightening. You all have heard me say over and over again, if there's one thing that keeps me up at night is that the Supreme Court decision around the gun laws. We, we did our job here in the state and passed laws that would protect uh, everyday New Yorkers. Uh, the governor and the attorney general, uh, they are going to appeal the decision of my understanding. Uh, I think, uh, who has you smiling? <laughs> so, you, so you texted somebody back. They said, Eric, ask you that. Um, <laughs> So we, 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 we believe it should be appealed. Uh, it, is the, it is the wrong thing to do. We need to isolate areas where people can't carry guns. It's just irresponsible to say New York is different from many other locations. It's too densely populated, and we need to be treated accordingly. The founder of the anti-gun violence group Gays Against Guns is J.W. Walker. He tells the news the mayor wanted to set up gun-free zones in heavily traveled parts of the city like Times Square and near schools. But those restrictions are now in doubt. As we know, in response to the Supreme Court decision, the legislature and the governor passed and enacted a bunch of laws to, to try to work around the Supreme Court's decision, allowing anybody to get a gun in New York, basically, who doesn't have a felony conviction, 
what this court decided is that particularly the laws that New York passed to designate certain areas as gun-free zones, like Times Square, like the subways, college campuses, etc., um, ruled that that was unconstitutional. That's where we are now. But they put a hold on the decision going into effect for three business days to give uh, New York State the opportunity to appeal to the federal circuit court for our district. So we're going to have to see what how that appeal goes. Now the now the idea behind these laws was that they would make it, uh, they would use their powers, the powers they thought they had, to make it illegal for guns to be uh, taken into Times Square or some other uh, important uh, location or venue where many people go, and that would be for the safety of that venue. Theoretically, that's not what they did. They did make the Times Square area fairly extensive, but they didn't sort of say the entirety of the city is a no-gun area. They, you know, they tried to limit it to particular types of businesses and particular, you know, sort of tourist areas where large numbers of people gather. Of course, most of Midtown is a tourist area because you've got the theater district, you've got the bus stations, you've got the train stations, you've got all these, you know, all these, uh, all these sort of areas where lots and lots of people are always congregated. They decide to make one big broad area that they call Times Square to sort of include all of those locations. It makes sense, right? Places that have historically been magnets for people doing mass shootings or for terrorist attacks, places you would think. Outside of, you know, things that are directly involved with ongoing criminal activity, gang stuff, you know, drug deals gone down, what have you. New York hasn't had, New York City has not had, like, all of these mass shootings that you see in other, you know, in other locations around the country. And it's precisely because New York has had for 100 years, over 100 years, these very, very strict laws on the ability of people to get guns. And uh, the Supreme Court eviscerated that ability from the state, and so the state's trying to do a workaround, uh, you know, according to the language of what the Supreme Court's decision was in June, and now this judge has uh, has struck that down. So this is eventually going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court if they accept it? Yeah, because these are activists that are pushing, the, that, that push this case challenging the new New York state gun laws that were just signed into effect this summer. If New York wins its appeal in our federal circuit court, then uh, there's almost no doubt that the plaintiffs will try to take that back to the Supreme Court. And of course, at the Supreme Court, you know, there's no saying what had happened there. Exactly. And so essentially, you know, this is a Republican operative, which is what these, especially these recent Supreme Court appointees are, these ones appointed under Trump, are declaring open season on major urban areas across the country and you gotta you gotta sort of look at that like how are how are major major urban areas comprised large numbers of 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 black people of latinx people large numbers of immigrants uh large numbers of now citizens immigrants large numbers of lgbtqia2s plus people they're declaring open warfare on these locations because those groups of people tend not to vote on vote for Republicans. Anything you'd like to add? 
the people of New York really have to wake up to this, get out there and start fighting and start demanding that our government be allowed to protect us from the caprices of, of the Supreme Court and the Republican Party. J.W. Walker is a founder of the anti-gun violence group Gays Against Guns. And finally, it was 66 years ago this week that baseball fans were exposed to a unique spectacle, one where nothing happens. The first and only perfect game in baseball's World Series. The New York Yankees were battling their arch-rival Brooklyn Dodgers. It was October 8, 1956. Game 5 of the series and the Yankees pitcher was Don Larson. a perfect game in a World Series. The final score, the Yankees two runs, five hits and no errors. The Dodgers no runs, no hits, no errors, in fact nothing at all. The closest any Dodger came to ruining Larson's sweep was Dodger Jackie Robinson, who missed making first base by a hair, a beautiful thing where nothing happens, 27 Dodger batters up and 27 down. Larson died in 2020 at the age of 90. And that's the news for Monday, October 10th, 2022. The news was written and anchored by me, Paul DiRienzo. You can find the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>